Welcome to Blockchain Won't Save the World, the podcast that aims to demystify blockchain and exponential technologies with real-world examples for beginners and experts alike. Because blockchain won't save the world. We will. Welcome back, everybody. Today, it's a technical masterclass. We're going to talk through the state of blockchain technology in 2020, and I'm joined by Antonio Senatore. He's the global CTO for blockchain at Deloitte, a good friend and a former colleague of mine. Antonio, welcome to the show. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you for having me today. That's my pleasure. And I'm really excited for this. This is going to be a technical deep dive. We're going to talk about the state of the technology. We're going to talk through some of the projects that you and maybe you and I also have worked on, obviously in anonymous format, talk through some of the learnings that we've had in terms of taking blockchain into production, and also get your specific take as a CTO on what more we need to do and how we can help more blockchain programs get in, into production. Let me start with a simple one, Antonio. Give us your blockchain origin story. How did you first start working with blockchain? It is very easy. It, the, the demand came from Deloitte, literally. In 2016, it was May 2016, when Deloitte opened the EMEA Blockchain Lab in Dublin. David Dalton at the time was looking into the technology and was finding the technology quite, quite interesting for a number of use cases, specifically for the financial services uh, sector. And so Deloitte founded a lab in Dublin, which is called and is still there, the EMEA Blockchain Lab, which I'm leading now, in May 2016. And then at some point in time, they needed a technically, the CTO. And they, they called me and said, Antonio, would you like to join the lab and to lead our technology effort and roadmap? And I said, in blockchain, uh, you know, I was just studying it like anyone else, studying Bitcoin and Ethereum at the time, no more than that. I said, wow, I would love that. And so I jumped in. We were very few people at the time. The lab has now grown into the team of over 30 people, but globally, the law, it is over 1,000 people. So during this journey of four years, I uh, became the global CTO for the firm in the blockchain space. And uh, yeah, that's that's the way it all started, with a call. As some of the best stories do, and obviously there are no blockchain natives in 2020. Tell us more about your background and how that fits into the work you do with blockchain. I'm a, By background, I'm a computer engineer, so I'm a software developer. I've been developing software since I was a teenager, basically. I come from many years of really Java development, uh, middleware, integration, API, ESB, queuing systems, et cetera, et cetera. I've done for a number of years, about 60 years, big data and, uh, and analytics, a lot, uh, a lot of infrastructure for uh, data architectures, you know, and, and large data deployments, literally before I was doing blockchain. So I kind of have a, an angle of software development and software development lifecycle and, and data and analytics. And I think blockchain kind of fits all of those together. I always say it's, it's probably the core tech to glue together all the technologies that, that are going to be part of the fourth industrial revolution. Let's talk about the state of the empire in 2020. We've seen lots of different platforms getting into production. There are many different flavors of blockchain, as some people say. There are many different types of blockchain platform out there, public and private. Give us your sense of what's working well, what's been successful, or where there's more work to be done. There's work to be done everywhere. That's got to be the bottom line here. There is a lot that has been done. There's still way too much to be done, and it will be done. I'm, I'm confident about that. So let's step back. 
you ask what is what is the current status of the art. We are in a, in a situation where we are seeing a number of players that are now mature enough. They have gathered a number of use cases, production deployments, and interest. Of course, the Ethereum blockchain being one of those, probably the main one, I would rather say, both in the public space and, per- and permission space. We have solutions for permission of Ethereum that are deployed and are working fine for years now. Of course, a lot of work being done by the Hyperledger Foundation, as you probably know better than me, the Fabric platform being there for a few years now with a significant number of, of large consortium, and that's, that's quite important, that's quite an achievement. Within the, the Hyperledger group, you also have, uh, of course, Hyperledger Indy, which is with, with the sovereign network, which is gaining a lot of traction in the, in the digital identity and, and the proof of credential space. You've got the Corda network, the R3, which is becoming almost a standard in the financial services industry for, for several reasons, for the way the protocol is, design, is designed, peer-to-peer, point-to-point, basically a middleware for organizations for uh, data exchange and for smart contracts between organizations, like, almost like a middleware for the market rather than a middleware for a single organization. Actually, their motto is they're trying to become the middleware for markets rather than uh, in the same way middleware was beneficial for organizations. So, and of course, within the Corda ecosystem, you also have the Corda networks, which is their public network to enable network to interoperate. Uh, you got the VeChain Foundation, which, which is gaining a lot of traction in the supply chain and carbon food, footprint space. It's a permissioned public blockchain, which is quite interesting as a concept. And yeah, these are, these are really the main players. Of course, you've got the Bitcoin blockchain. You can still do time stamping there, as you can do anywhere else, and you can get a lot of Use cases don't. I knew we were going to get a timestamping reference at some point today. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. To be honest, I still have a few timestamping I did myself in the early days in 2016. I think there is a timestamp on the Bitcoin blockchain when we opened the EMEA blockchain lab in Dublin from my personal wallet, which I, I think I sent. It, it was a very small transaction fee, but I think at, at some point in time, that transaction fee was about two, 300 euro. And that that is one yeah, I mean, there are still others around, Anthony. You, you've got the EOS, which is actually growing a lot, getting momentum traction. You have some minor players that probably still have something to say. These are the core platforms, though. Around the core platforms, what we are seeing, and protocols, let's call that, we're seeing an exponential growth in, uh, you know, infrastructure. Mm, we, we are seeing the work that you guys in IBM have done with the Red Dot, with Kubernetes uh, and OpenShift. We have seen what Oracle has done with Hyperledger Fabric, creating a platform as a service on Oracle Cloud to create blockchain instances and networks. And not only that, also uh, off the cloud, also on premises. We are seeing Kaleido, what the Kaleido guys are doing, which means, again, platform as a service for blockchain. It's almost like a blockchain marketplace to create blockchain network and blockchain instances. What the Infura guys are doing, which is basically hosting public Ethereum nodes, offering blockchain as a services, basically, and, and others. So, you, you know, you have a number of core protocols which are now kind of mature enough, although I don't, uh, I don't exclude that we will see a few more happening in the next few years. And then you've got a number of, uh, of players who are trying to put infrastructure on, around all of those. And this is quite important to get live, to be honest. 
And what's the difference between core and non-core? I mean, what do we have that allows Ethereum, Hyperledger, Corda to become core or to become mature versus you know, what's happened to the likes of Chain, Multi-Chain, Steam? What is it that makes them core for you? Well, first of all, is the, as anything, it's the adoption. It's you know, the fact that there's a number of, uh, of uh, organizations that are using it. And that becomes core because, as you know, one of the biggest fear of, of any CTO like me or CIOs is to pick the wrong technology. And, uh, you know, picking the technology that everybody else is, is picking, the technology that is more mature in the market, the, the technology that has got the more traction makes everybody feel safer and feel that they're doing the right decision. So sometimes it's just market driven. To me, though, personally, what makes a technology mature, mature is the fact that I can literally sit on my laptop, download the nodes, create a blockchain instance immediately, deploy smart contract, and deploy anywhere then I want, I want you know, locally, on a, on a server that I have internally in my organization, or in the cloud, either that be you know, simple VMs through containerization, of course, or, or platform as a service. So to me, the maturity stands in the fact that it enables me a true DevOps experience, as I say, the ability to you know, work on my laptop, work, work on my instances to create networks and deploy that everywhere instantly, quickly. And that's not, not, not an, easy, an easy thing to achieve with a technology like blockchain, because it's a network technology. So there is a lot of players uh, within infrastructural players within the network that needs to be orchestrated and need to communicate together. So it's not trivial, but I can guarantee you a couple of years ago, getting a, an Ethereum node, a private Ethereum node running on, a, well, let's say more, three years ago, getting an Ethereum node running on a, on a Docker image anywhere was a lot of pain. Getting an Ethereum, node, an Ethereum network configured in proof of authority running on, a, on an orchestrated Docker was quite difficult. Maturity stands not only in the fact that the thing works and does what it's supposed to do, also in the facility that enables you to develop, to deploy, to monitor, to maintain. Those networks and those protocols that I just mentioned are growing an ecosystem around them. And that, that is making them very viable for production use cases. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, that, that's really helpful. And again, it's important for people to think through as you're choosing a particular technology or as you're thinking of establishing your network, you want to try and focus as much on the commercial case, the ecosystem, getting the parties together and not having to fight with your technical team to be able to spin up the technology in the first place. Yes. It sounds like we're moving towards making the establishment of the core nodes of the network and, and the core smart contracts as simple as spinning up a Squarespace website, which makes a ton of sense. And then you can focus your time on more value-added activity. Definitely, definitely. I mean, you, you want to be, as a CTO, you want to know that the team is efficient. The team has the right tools from development, from you know, automa testing automation, which is something that has been missing for, for years. And now we are seeing a few frameworks from user acceptance testing, again, in the testing automation space to penetration testing if needed, up to the deployment and managing of the network. So that's what we want to achieve. We want blockchain network to work uh, and blockchain projects to work to be as easy uh, to deploy as anything else we have been doing in the past 10 years. You know, we, we have all aimed as technologists to speed up in the way we develop and deploy things and to reduce the risks of failing, of course, the risks of bugs, the risk of 
security uh, breaches, uh, and in the meantime, and in, at the same time, of course, being commercially viable. That's what the aim is, and that's what maturity of a technology should should, should give to you. So if we've got through a good degree of improvement in terms of the user experience or the developer experience with some of these core platforms, where does the pain remain? What's still challenging for your teams as they're trying to work on blockchain programs and take them into production? Oh, well, there is, there is a lot in there. There is still a degree of integration with, with existing tech stack, which and sometimes you can't, there are surprises that are unexpected. Literally integration with, uh, you know, there's, there's a series of legacy applications that you have. They may be running in .NET, in Java. There could be an ESB system running somewhere, an API provider. You know, uh, you may have a microservices architecture that is using certain technologies to deliver those services. And then all, all of a sudden you're trying to integrate all of those with a blockchain network that, that is going to enable you to do some stuff, uh, whatever that is, reconciliation anything really, uh, either private or public. Integration is one of the first problems. We, and we are still facing those. It's still some of our uh, core issues to get full integration capabilities and very well-documented API or whatever that could be protocols, integration protocols with different blockchain networks. That is one. As usual, is, is of course deployment for me and cloud deployment and containerization and clusterization, uh, integration with uh, Docker, Kubernetes. We're getting there. Uh, we're not fully there. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done. It doesn't work as smoothly as you may think, always. And there is, there is a lot of configuration that you need to do beforehand to enable that to happen, which is something that doesn't happen with anything else. If I look at creating a, a Kubernetes pod with a MySQL server, I can do that immediately with you in 10 seconds and we deploy anywhere we want uh, on my laptop or on the cloud. It's not that easy. Of course, blockchain is more complicated, but yet uh, there's still work that needs to be done there. The other one is key storage, where we are, we are uh, not struggling, but there are different aspects in the, into that. You know, you, know we, you develop enterprise solutions. Uh, in some extents, the, the, the transactions are signed within the network itself. Uh, imagine a, a fabric cluster, a fabric network, hyperledger fabric network. So the key storage is kind of integrated within the node itself that is going to run or, or separately, but within the same network. And there are different solutions that are coming out that are trying to uh, make that seamless, that integration, that digital signature, keeping your keys safe, et cetera, et cetera. But HSM are very clumsy beasts. I mean, they're very big. They're, they're, they're difficult to get it right. They're difficult to configure. They're difficult to integrate. We are still finding HSM integration sometimes overcomplicated. That's in the nature of HSM, though. I mean, what I like to see is to see more virtual HSM coming out, be that in the cloud. Of course, that's, that's why it's virtual HSM or, or, or on-premises. You know, they're not quite there. Even the way transactions are signed, uh, sometimes transaction gets signed outside in memory, not fully integrated. There's still a lot of work to be done. That's for HSM. And never, not to mention wallets, mobile wallets. No, there are phones coming out with, with HSM capabilities, with key storage, but they're not there. They're not for common use for everyone. So the, the exercise of, of storing uh, pr private keys on your phone 
not fully integrated with an HSM on the phone. It, it's kind of uh, with a key with with a, a hardware key storage. It's it's always dangerous. So there's aspects there that need to improve as well. And then, Anthony, there is a lot that still needs to be done in terms of cloud uh, platform as a service. Good work uh, from many organizations, Kaleido and Oracle, IBM, I mentioned a few minutes ago. But if you compare with any cloud experience you had so far on Azure, trying to create, I don't know, anything, anything you want, an OJS up with, with a database, Mongo database, with in front of it, uh, uh, I don't know, any, any, any sort of load balancer, backup, et cetera, et cetera, with a pipeline of deployment. It is literally one click away. It's not there yet for blockchain. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done there as well. So that, that's where, where I see most of the challenges for us. A bit of also lack of penetration testing tools and, and uh, static and, and, and dynamic, let's call it runtime analysis. They are getting there, they're out there, but we are nowhere near what we have for any other uh, you know, server-side application or any other network technology, et cetera. So th there is a number of things that need to get there to help us develop faster. Thanks for that, Antonio. And there's a few things in there that I wanted to double click on. Obviously, a wealth of knowledge in terms of some of the pain that you've had to go through. And I guess it's a lot easier to do the work that we do today than it, than it was three years ago. But the likes of wallets, of cryptocurrency and key management, do you find in the enterprise space, these are challenging concepts for clients to talk through? Are these barriers to adoption at this point? Well, the, the thing is this. The clients that we have been working so far, in most cases, I know clients are different, but they never had to talk about key storage for any type of applications that they were doing. I mean, they had their own HSM for some particular type of applications, but key storage and, of course, cryptocurrencies in the enterprise space, uh, sorry, in the blockchain space, they are key concepts, okay? They're a must-have. I mean, you cannot run a blockchain network without, without a key storage or, or at least having having someone that is going to sign the transactions for you. So you're looking into a space where clients are saying, clients have two problems there. One is, hold on a minute, are you telling me if I need to run these this, uh, apps into a public network, I need to host cryptocurrencies to pay for gas? That is a concern. That is a concern. That's still nowadays, we are in 2020, it's, it's still a concern because there are different reasons why that is a concern. Mainly two. One is the security, like what if I lose the, the, my keys? What if somebody steals my keys? It's a responsibility internally for, for security system, for, for IT, and it's a responsibility that, very, of, of course, very few people are willing to take. And second one is really the concept itself of cryptocurrencies being still in the early days and, and, and still not being mainstream, so not having the reputation that it probably deserves in the market. So that's definitely one. But there's not only the fact that, okay, I don't want to store cryptocurrencies. I, I don't want to have an HSM because now solutions are coming out to avoid that. It's also the, the entire um, blockchain architecture in general, even when it doesn't entail uh, cryptocurrencies, you always need an HSM, you always need a key storage. And that's always complicates the discussion. Got it. And through all of that, we didn't mention zero knowledge proofs, which, which I know is a topic that you've been spending a lot of your headspace in. Is zero knowledge a technology that's ready for deployment now? Is this something that you're seeing being deployed in production? Where are we on zero knowledge proofs at this stage? 
you know, zero knowledge proof. It's it's an incredible technology. You know, we are part. Deloitte is a part of the zk proof standard. Org. We we have uh, we have organized the first uh, zero knowledge proof uh, community event in Europe, which was in Amsterdam in November. We we strongly believe in the tech. That's one. Where are we? I mean, Anthony, there are things that now we know we can do, but zero knowledge proof is it is so big. It's all about definition of a trusted setup environment. And based on what you want to do, which means which is the type of transaction and the base reference of data that you want to transact, it can get very complicated. We know now we pretty much have zero knowledge proof for uh, for digital assets. So we can, uh, there are solutions out there, different various solutions where you can shadow transactions uh, that are related to ERC-20 or ERC-721 on Ethereum blockchain. If I look at the sovereign network on Hyperledger Indy, you can literally create proof of your identity or your qualifications without revealing anything. That's in the, within the Hyperledger Foundation. So that data reference has been cracked. And there are there are others that are putting out their frameworks that are uh, that aim to to do more and more. But I think you know zero knowledge proof is about creating protocols, and every time is about what we are actually trying to exchange here. And every time that can look extremely different. So what we're going to have to do is to look at what, what the industry does and what the experts do, and every time what the new protocols for the new assets are going are gonna to look like. Uh, so at the moment, there are stuff we can do. There are things we can do, but it's going to be uh, the next 10 years journey. Got you. So it sounds like we've got to create a separate protocol or we've got to work towards a library of types of proof that we can standardize for this to become a more scalable proposition. Yes, pretty much like that. And of course, the, we, the, we the final aim to get at some point where, uh, as anything else, you're just going to have a series of libraries where everybody can say, create a token, near C20, here you go. And yeah, create proofs, distribute those tokens in CKP and create proofs that you're transferring this token, create proofs that you have this token, et cetera, et cetera. So you want to reach a level of really almost shielding anything that you have uh, or the entire trusted setup, uh, reference data, and basically allow developers and uh, cryptographers to just call libraries to say, okay, generate these transactions generate a zero knowledge proof for this type of data, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that is the aim, and that's what we are seeing in the market. If you look at the Kedit solution or the Aztec solution, that's what the guys are trying to do. And even the EY uh, solution, which I think at the time was Nightfall, now I think it's called differently right now. There's been a new release, baseline protocol, which effectively, I mean, I'm still, we are still digging into that to understand what it does, but it's basically a framework that enables you to, to generate ZKP proofs you know, through APIs. Now, it's a lot bigger than that, but that's the overall concept. Antonio, before we get into some of the wit and wisdom from some of the experience that you've had into taking blockchain into production, I wanted to pause. I know that you're a voracious reader and you do probably more research around blockchain than anyone else I've ever met. You're constantly looking for learning, which is something that I hold in really high regard and what makes you the CTO that you are today. Tell me, where do you go for your learning and reading? How do you keep abreast of the technology? How do you keep up with what's important to learn when it comes to technology and blockchain? Well, Anthony, that is the most, one of the, the, probably the most difficult question of the day. Usually, to be honest, I look after uh, and I look up to people that are better than me the CTOs of larger organizations, the CTO of big tech companies. 
former CEOs, et cetera, are literally still their reading list, believe it or not. And which is which is a good thing to do because these guys they know what what they, they, they reach very high positions, they achieved a lot in life, and they, they can see when something is truly disruptive and worth reading. So I really refer a lot to people that I believe are have been more successful than me. Personally, the way I look at that, it's it's through my feed reader. I, I'm uh, I'm constantly on most on most of the top technology feeds that are out there, Ars Technica and others, with topics related to blockchain, big data analytics, uh, machine learning, AI, DevOps, cloud, uh, and more. Uh, And uh, that's where I get probably most of the knowledge of the tech that is worth investigating. After 20 years in business, I kind of know what, what are the problems out there. And so I'm able to spot when something is really worth reading immediately. And that, that that was the case, you know, when even when I started Zero Knowledge Proof, the first time I heard about it was three years ago and I said, this is going to be a big game changer. So that, that that's where really I go about my reading. It's it's through, through advices from people that are better than me and through my, my technology feeds. And I know it's not just reading with you, right? You do like to get your hands dirty and do a bit of coding every once yes. in a while? Yes, yes, a lot, always. As you know, I still like to, to keep my hands dirty within the code. And that gives me a lot of confidence when, when I read something to understand whether it's good or not. Because the simple, the first thing I always do is, is try it. Sit on my laptop, have my cloud instances, start coding, start developing, deploying it. Does it work? Is it easy? That gives me an initial feeling whether what you're talking about whether the new tech that is coming out it really has legs to stand on uh, or not. Uh, one of the things that, you know, as a CTO, especially in Deloitte, we get, we get a lot of vendors that want to work with us. I assume that's the same for you uh, and for many here listening to the podcast. My advice to everyone when, when assessing a new tech and trying to read more about that is really just a simple one. Just try it. Get it running on your laptop. Start coding it. See how that is, because somebody somebody in your team is going to have to use it. If it's not easy for you, it's not going to be easy for everyone. That's my probably number one advice when I, when assessing something new. And what was the last technology that you spun up a POC on, or what was the last thing you explored that was outside of mainstream? Yeah, it was the CADIT framework uh, for Zero Knowledge Proof. Literally uh, in January, February this year was the last uh, last thing that I've done. And, and what were you trying to spin up on Kedit? Uh, it's just it's just on a private Ethereum trying to create zero knowledge proof for ERC20 and ERC721 tokens, and that worked quite well. I mean, I was able not 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 immediately, but after a, a couple of uh, of attempts, I was able to to get it running. But it's a it's a continuous thing. I think before I was playing with the Oracle Cloud, before again is was creating Quorum and uh, Pegasus Pantheon network on, uh, on Kaleido. It was another one. You know, it's a, it's a way for me to, to, to really understand whether the technology is, uh, is in some extent serious and whether the vendor is putting in the right amount of time and investment around it, which is another talking point, by the way. Yeah, identifying the, the vendors that are serious about it, that are serious about blockchain or not. And how do you determine who's serious or not? What are the criteria that you look for? 
it's the quality of what they deliver, Anthony. I mean, if you look at, you know, there is there is one one thing that is uh, that usually impresses me. It's the quality of documentation and the fact that the, your documentation matches exactly what, what what you plan to deliver. Investing into the documentation, technical documentation, it's a difficult job. It's expensive. It requires the technical provider and the team and the CTO to sit together. Sit together it means it is it is a strategic investment. So it's one of the first things that I look at. With a bad documentation, it's either your early days or you're really not being serious about that. The second one is my ability to literally run whatever you have quickly and make it work in a, in, a, in, a, in a few clicks away, which means that you have been thinking about the user, that you've been thinking about the developer, you've been thinking about the fact that the person that is going to develop around your tech needs assistance, needs a series of tools around that. There's been a lot in this in this market of of uh, announcement in blockchain space that were just PR, but there was very little behind. Good look at the documentation and good look at the technology uh, and the easiness of developing and deploying. It's it's always it's going to give you the, the answer. So this show is all about the practical realities of working with blockchain and getting into production. We've said it many times. We've proven most of the technical concepts, and you said it as well today. What we're able to do technically with blockchain is pretty well understood. What I'd love to be able to share with the community is some of your key learnings or examples or stories from some of the production programs that you've run. What went well? What are some of the must-dos? What are some of the painful learnings? What are some of the main things that come to mind for you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a difficult question because there's, uh, there's been a lot. It's been 40 years now. You know, what went well is the fact that uh, over the years, the, the technology has been improving and we, we've been able to, to release live projects in, uh, with different uh, technologies. For instance, with Corda, uh, the transition from Corda 2 and Corda 3 went extremely well. Uh, I think at that point in time, the technology was mature enough, was actually working. We were able to, to kind of, of release several production projects. Not easily, but but with confidence. What went well is is uh, an improved you know ability to integrate with different existing platform. What what went well was uh, our ability to dockerize nodes uh, to, to to create Kubernetes pods. Although you know to, with a bit of uh, you know work around that. There, there are things that went well. The fact itself that we had blockchain projects live, it is it is a good sign and. Uh, you know, whoever has put uh, a live blockchain project, you know, has helped the entire community and has helped all of us. What are some key learnings? Well, it's uh, let's say what went bad first. Nothing really went really bad, but in several instances at the beginning of our journey, sizing uh, all the different uh, nodes, all the different uh, images, all the different instances of nodes was, uh, you know, it is something that uh, everybody should look at with, with care uh, because, you know, you always tend to underestimate the amount of traffic that the thing is going to generate, especially if you're looking at, you know, deploying within your organization public blockchain nodes. Don't underestimate ever in public blockchain deployments the time and the effort that goes into the synchronization with the public network. Don't underestimate with public blockchain uh, networks deployment when you're running your own node that uh, a fork that you're not you're not aware or a software upgrade and all of a sudden it, it doesn't work it happens to us once believe it or not I know most of the times are very well announced etc but there may be changes that where really your your API no longer works or your node no no longer syncs 
correctly. And you're like, well, what is going on here? These are uh, some of the the things. That, it's not that went badly, but some of the issues we, we faced. In permissioned ledgers, for me, what is really in permissioned networks, it's about scaling the network and making sure the, of the onboarding of new uh, players. And I'm talking as a technologist here. I know it's a business problem rather than a, rather than a and it's a governance problem rather than a technology problem, because it's a process. How do you do that? What is the process for you of saying, we are 20 organizations, we want the 21st organization, and by the way, this organization can play X, Y, and Z in this network. Okay, you, you have defined that. Don't underestimate the technology effort that goes behind realizing that. And actually, my suggestion is that be prepared to do that. So as I said, create war games. Just simulate all different situations that can occur. Organization A want to join. It's going to be endorsed by B, C, and D. They want to access this part of the ledger or if it's permission and if it's Corda style, if it's a point-to-point, if it's on a need-to-C. And they want to be able to, I don't know, act, uh, act as a gatekeeper as well or act as a, you know only validator or just a peer node. What does it mean? The blockchain technology itself and the different protocols that are there at the moment don't make it easy to do. And that's probably a talking point that I should have mentioned earlier. The ability for you to expand permission and networks is not there yet. What more players within the network is really not there uh, in fully. I mean, you can do that, but there is a lot of manual scripting to be done. So my advice to everyone is to get that manual scripting done yourself quickly during the project until the technology and all the different protocols are mature enough to enable literally a few configuration steps or clicks away for adding new 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 players in the network. These are pretty much, Anthony, the, the, some of the, the learnings. Of course, other, you know, from learning, this is from our, my, our own learning. If you look at the market, there is a lot around security, there's a lot around testing, there's a lot around penetration testing. It is something you've got to take into account, especially when playing into public networks. It is something that you need to cost for. It is something you need to be very, very conscious about because it's, uh, in, in some cases, you won't be able to revert and w- what you have done. And even in permission network, it's very, it's very difficult to then recreate everything. These are some of the tips. Thank you so much for the examples. Obviously, a mix of a lot of technical challenges there, but a couple of things you mentioned were actually the people-based challenges, onboarding and offboarding, even working with some of the IT teams or the security teams in client organizations. That can be as much of a challenge as actually the technology build in the lab as well, right? Absolutely. absolutely. There are several clients that I met, and I think you met as well, where the the solution was technically sound in theory and also in practice. I mean, the network was working, the network was accepting transactions, the smart contracts were running, the assets were exchanged, the payments was verified on chain, all those th- the things that we do in blockchain network, public and private. And then there was a moment, there, there is the aha moment or whatever you want to call it, when you know, a blockchain network, ultimately, what is a blockchain network? It's a network on nodes. So what we deliver to clients is a full stack. No, we deliver to clients the core ledger, the HSM in some cases, or whatever whatever we, we are going to put, the, the API layer, a UI, an integration layer, uh, maybe an off-chain database, whatever that is. We, we give a package, and then each one gets this package 
there could be a certificate authority as well, and they run it, and they have to connect to the network that they want to connect, be that you know a consortium or whatever that is. And, and all of a sudden, the, the security people, the enterprise architect within the enterprise architecture team of, of the organization, especially in financial services, which are, for the obvious reasons, very wary about security and, and very, very aware and, and very conscious, they're going to tell you, no, listen, we, we cannot have these in this fashion. We cannot have, you know, the HSM integrated here. It has to be within our own network. Uh, we cannot have the API sitting there. And by the way, the ledger, uh, we cannot open the ports that are going to uh, enable you to do the peer-to-peer connection with, with the other players. And so we need to open different ports, and that may require three months of requests uh, and of process to get that approved. So, I mean, internal processes are, are a big deal, especially for big organizations, and uh, never underestimate that. So what is the solution here? You just need to, to involve all your stakeholders from day one. These are not problems you want to find out or not work packages that you want to have added on at the very end just before you go into production, right? Yeah, Anthony, but people have found those problems before going into the production. So this has happened. I'm not talking personally, but it's it's in the news and talking to clients. It's been happening. Uh, hence, it's important that we point out. For sure. And I guess when you're talking about a founder network or a vertical network where you've got one lead organization, these are the challenges that you're going to get to up front as you get into production. When you're getting into a horizontal or a network of multiple parties, competitors, peers in an organization, you can build the technology and then there's the bootstrapping process where you're adding one by one by one by one. And where on paper you've got a network of 15, 20, 30 companies, actually you only end up with one, two, three or four at the beginning and then you might get a drip feed of some others as their internal onboarding process eventually catches up. Let's forget about blockchain for a minute. The way we have done agile software development in in the past few years, 10 years, I'd say, it's been through through the release of MVPs and incremental products. That's a standard. We know how to do that. Microservices architecture actually help us doing that better and DevOps technologies and techniques they help us achieving that you know with continuous integration and delivery microservices you can just increase and add the features that is perfect in the blockchain space you not only talk about minimum viable product you talk about a minimum viable ecosystem you got to identify who are the initial players within your network what is the and what they do are they just consuming and submitting transactions are they part of the governance are they validating, et cetera, et cetera. And then you need to figure out how to scale from that minimum viable ecosystem. So a good design for a blockchain network is minimum viable ecosystem, minimum viable product, and ability to scale. And with all those learnings in the hopper so far, and as you start continuing your journey and speaking to clients in future, what are some of the early stage guidances or insights or stories that you tell to clients as they begin their blockchain journey that help you hopefully mitigate some of the pain later down the road? Well, first of all, blockchain, it's a network technology. It's a technology for transacting with other organizations. It's a a technology that is going to build a layer of trust across markets, across organizations, across industries. And so you got to identify what is your network, who do you want to talk with, and why uh, you are thinking of using blockchain. Because maybe not the right solution for your problem. So this is the number one advice when, when I get into, into the room for, with my clients. I mean, why are we talking about blockchain here? What is that we are t- you're trying to solve? What is your network? And how does your network look like today? 
is gonna is blockchain gonna help you to increase that network to make that network wider and why so that is one of the number one points that we try to get that across and then, then there's others but that, i think that is the main one identify your network and identify how do you scale it now the second one that i like uh, lately is think out of the box you have identified your network that is fine what about other networks is there any other network you would like to talk to and then interoperability becomes an issue but that's that's probably a different a different discussion let's assume you are offering you know you're tokenizing real estate anthony anything any asset or you're running a trade finance platform and all of a sudden you know you you need to integrate with banking networks or maybe you want to integrate with insurance networks that are out there already running on blockchain where you actually want to insure the cargo which is an asset how do you scale out there so i always tell my clients then start thinking about the other networks uh, let's assume you're you're running uh, some project and these projects are running on the blockchain uh, you know there's really a workflow management running there with, with with all the different stakeholders with the digital identity how do you connect to a supply chain that is running on another blockchain to make sure your uh, the materials that you're getting are sustainable and your carbon footprint is within regulation if there is any like that so the second piece of advice that i ask you to think uh, what are the other ecosystem that the client wants to play in and then of course interoperability becomes the challenge i'm glad you brought up interoperability because <laughs> i feel like we've gone down the road of the kind of the painful learnings and this experience of the past i want just to open the aperture just a tiny bit because i know that you spend a lot of your time thinking about what's next that's the core role of the cto where are we at this point in time on interoperability I know you had Polkadot and some of the guys in the lab not too long ago. Is this near horizon or have we still got a way to go? Mm, that's a difficult one. I think we are still, we still got a way to go. Anthony, there are, there are several thoughts, uh, school of thoughts here. You get you know, a number of, of organizations and people believing that it's going to be one winner that takes it all. Blockchain can literally uh, deliver on promises only if we all use the same protocol like we have done with the internet, which is a legitimate uh, opinion, and I see where it's coming from, but yet that's not the way things are going. I believe we're going to have one global network that needs to be governed, but this global network is going to be comprised by multiple chains. And that, that's what Andreas Antonopoulos said recently, uh, one network, multiple chains. Now, are we there? No, no way near. There are some protocols Cosmos that allow you to do atomic swap. The Polkadot guys are doing a tremendous job there. I think they're going live or they're very close to be live. There is the ability in some of the networks like Fabric to run Ethereum smart contract. There are some work around with, with, with digital asset around creating a common language to define digital asset that can be then moved across networks, but that solves the development problem, not really the asset sharing problem, but it's still a, a, good, a good approach. But it's still a long way to go in my view. The ability to swap assets across network is gonna be uh, a difficult one. A good work has been done also from, with Corda, uh, with the Corda networks. Yes, it is still within the same network, like it's still within the same protocol, but they are effectively different networks. Even swapping assets across multiple networks that are running on the same protocol is it's difficult at the moment. It's very difficult to do. Corda, the, the, the R3 guys have resolved that 
using the, the Corda networks and it, it's getting a lot of momentum. But really, you know, swapping assets from private to public chain, it's a difficult one to achieve. So no, we are, we are not there yet. And, and it's not it's something that shouldn't scare anybody because that's the end goal. That's going to be the end game. Once, once we are going to have all these multiple networks solving insurance, reinsurance, finance, trade finance, microcredit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the ability for them to interconnect and swap assets is going to be crucial. It's going to be the moment where we say, okay, we, we have made it because then our network can expand beyond the use cases we thought. They can expand beyond what we were thinking at the beginning. And that, that's what's going to change the world because we're going to do things that we didn't think we could do before. I hear you. And it's clear to observe you're seeing lots of different blockchain networks spinning up, some in the same industry or competing blockchain platforms. If you look at trade finance or supply chain, a bunch of similar technologies, but being done on different protocols. And so for the time being, you're going to see maybe you could call it a balkanization or silos of platforms being established for the next few years. And in my view, as long as they're creating business value or they're helping to improve or to reduce friction, that's worthwhile for now. It's not perfect. A globally adopted universal standard blockchain platform is going to be a really difficult thing to implement. So in the meantime, what we're doing, I think, is valid. But clearly, your interoperability is going to be something that we're going to need to solve. And I think you're going to see multiple companies coming together to look and solve those problems because they see value in those, those interconnections. But even the interconnection is not going to look the same across multiple networks. You may have interoperability solutions that can, uh, you know, make easy to interoperate networks that are running using the same protocol. That's fine. Other that are going to go multi-protocols. So you're going to see multiple different solutions. And that's where the next wave of, of horsepower needs to go. Absolutely. Absolutely, because that's where then we, we know that we have achieved what we wanted to achieve, that blockchain has delivered on promises. But in the meantime, there's still work to be done on the protocols themselves. So there's going to be, it's going to be two streams of work, uh, and it's going to be very interesting to see. This is where it gets to a really interesting level where you've got multiple types of blockchain protocol, multiple types of interoperability protocol, trying to connect multiple networks in multiple geographies. I don't even want to go there right now. Let, let's step away from this, but it's clear well, we and exciting. Don't need to, we don't need to be scared about that. It's the way technology evolves. And actually, the more we try, it's open tech, it's open technology. The more we try, the more solution we get out there, the, the better for everyone. That, that's my view. I have an approach that is very pragmatic. You know, we, we set up together our, our multi-platform approach at the time. And, and that's where we see things. Different networks are going to be good at doing different things. And as, we, uh, as things continue, we are going to see interoperability or multiple interoperability solutions. That's, that's really the way it's going to go. I want to touch on another one of your favorite topics is artificial intelligence. And I know there's plenty of throwaway lines that have been written in articles, in white papers saying blockchain and AI will do this or blockchain and AI together will solve the world. And practically speaking, I don't think we're there yet. Where do you see the intersection between blockchain and AI? Yeah, the title of the of your of the podcast is "Blockchain Won't Save the World." So I'm quite sure blockchain and AI won't save the world either. It it is an interesting combination which I like very much because it's one of the cases where uh, you know we always sometimes people refer to blockchain and trust me they were referring to the internet in the past in the same with the same way it's the technology looking for a solution for a problem to solve. 
while that's not really true because we, we have seen lots of uh, solutions that are very viable using blockchain. But blockchain and AI together is one of those ways where technology is going to be used for a way that was not taught before. It's almost like, hey, I found that I can plug blockchain within AI and achieve something which is really interesting. So almost like blockchain as a technology tool to enable another technology to work better, almost like a, a technology support. I consider that the glue, blockchain, the glue and the infrastructure that is going to take AI to the next level. The problem with AI that we are going to face and we see is this. There are two things there. AI relies on data. AI is a data-driven technology. By definition, AI learns from data. And AI makes decisions based on previous data and makes decisions based on data that is coming in and, and delivers an out. So you, you have two problems here. One is the data that was fed to the AI, whether it's trusted or not. Where is it coming from? Is it coming from a trusted source, etc.? And then the AI itself, you know, you, you see in the future, you can already see using, a, you know, AI as a service to do image recognition or very, very, very simple things. But imagine in the future whether you want to do very serious things like AI as a service to check whether you have cancer or not or any, anything else. How do you rely on that AI? That's where blockchain, I think, gets everything together because it can, blockchain can track the data provenance. So where does AI learn from? can prove that that AI has learned from that data to, to a combination of different cryptography techniques and machine learning. And you can also have a digital identity of that AI. And imagine in the future where AI, future, a future of AI networks, AI that is going to learn from each other, they're going to exchange information from each other, and uh, actually applications that are going to use different AIs to deliver on different things. Imagine the amount of trust that you need to put into those uh, networks. And that's where blockchain comes into play for AI. That, and I think that is an incredible thing. That's really interesting. And it talks to a number of the different levels of the blockchain capability. So it's trying to provide access to potentially sensitive data to AIs to help with their learning algorithms. Yes. It's also looking at helping to maintain a history of the activity of that AI so you can trace back the decisions that it has made based on certain inputs? Exactly. And you can also have situations where you're in a network, the AI is going to make a decision for you, which is quite important. can be life and death in some instances, or a very, very uh, sensitive business decision, which, which can mean a lot of money or security breaches. And then you've got this AI running in a network, almost through smart contracts, and the group of AI achieving consensus about what is the right answer to give here so that the decision can, can become as a consensus, can come out as a consensus. That's another quite interesting way of, of looking at that. So we talked that interoperability is still a few years away in terms of the technology being ready to take into production. How far away do you feel that AI and blockchain interacting could be? I think we're still a few years away. For technology and also people reasons. Uh, I mean, if you look, as I said before, AI is a very much data-driven technology. It's all around data. So it's all about permission of uh, gathering the data. So it's all about giving consent for the data. It's all about knowing where your data is stored and understanding who is, uh, who is going to use your data and for what. So there is a, a com 
I wouldn't say a compliance, but a regulation problem there to make this viable. But in reality, that's really the blockchain promise. If you think about that, it's about self-sovereign identity. It's about self-sovereign data, which means, you know, being able to immediately say, I want to give access to my data set to these guys, X, Y, and Z, to do X, Y, and Z. Imagine an, an open decentralized marketplace, Anthony. Imagine things like the Ocean Protocol or the Constellation Network. Uh, they're, they're basically public data lakes where people give consent of accessing their own data or their own company data or their own IoT data or whatever that is. But those stacks are really early stage. There are a number of those. Uh, I haven't seen them in production yet. Uh, maybe they are, but I haven't seen many use cases. There are main nets, of course. It means they're, they're really in production, but they haven't experienced any client requesting. That, that type of service. So still a few years away. And remember, you know, it's, we're still talking about data. So there's, there's going to be a regulation angle into all of this, which probably blockchain is going to help. Thanks, Antonio. As always, I've learned a, a huge amount today. It's always great talking with you. And I'm going to put it out there immutably, or at least for as long <laughs> as this podcast stays up. I miss you, buddy. I miss working with you. I wish you every success. Before we close the show, I want to ask, where can the audience find you? How can they find out more about the work you're doing? And what have you got going on in your life? Oh, God. Where people can find me. I mean, you can find me on LinkedIn and message me there. That's probably the easiest way. That's the, that's the easiest thing people uh, use nowadays to, to reach out for, for business purposes. I'm, I'm leading the EMEA Blockchain Lab. So I'm still the global CDO for Deloitte in the blockchain space. So you can... You can reach out to me through email, uh, just Googling the Deloitte website and Antonio Sanatore, and you'll find me there. What, what I got going on in my life is to continue working on, in the blockchain space, which is probably in the past four years have been the most exciting and frustrating years of my life. I have that feeling that we are doing something that is literally reshaping the world as we know it. It's not going to save the world, but it's going to change a lot of the way we interact within each other. What I'm doing right now is just continuing helping clients in delivering solutions that can improve the way they interact with other organizations, with customers, uh, with governments, etc. Well, I wish you all the best and, of course, to the rest of the Deloitte team. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and I hope our paths cross again very soon. It will for sure. Thank you, Anthony. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast. All opinions here expressed are those of myself and my guests. If you're looking for more, you can follow me on LinkedIn for more blockchain-related content. And until next time, stay safe out there.